This is Geek Gab with your host, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 9th, 2018. And uh, I just want you all to know that when I say we are back, I have to be using that in a strictly royal we sense. My uh, valiant and uh, valorous and amazing co-host John is currently in parts foreign, uh, working on his real career and was not able to join the show for today. In lieu of having my co-host here, I will, of course, be handling all the hosting duties myself. And uh, I warn you, just that you might want to sit down because this much awesome in one place can actually cause you to faint. We are required by the federal government to issue that warning. Now, today, I'm going to kind of sort of a little bit cover one movie and then also talk about this other movie I had to watch yesterday called Ocean's 8. I went there. I sat through the whole thing. I'm going to tell you what it was like so that you can make a fully informed decision on your own. But first, Solo. People have been upset because uh, I haven't done a solo episode on the show. We haven't talked about Solo, a Star Wars story on the show. Well, I did a full review when I was on the Superverse SF podcasts a couple of Sundays ago. And I also wrote a little bit more in my Castalia House column. So I've said pretty much everything I want to say uh, there. But I have been observing the recent controversy over Solo, where the movie has been failing in the theaters. There's been a 70%, 77% drop-off in revenues from the first week to the second, which is indicative of a movie that the audience hated. Because if they loved it, they'd tell their friends that they loved it and be, more people go and see it. There's always a drop-off, but this big a drop-off is a movie that is no good. And of course, like any sane person, the producers and directors of the movie sat back and said, we're sorry. Obviously, we made a movie that didn't connect with the audience. Obviously, we made a movie that did not fulfill people's uh, ideas of what a Star Wars movie should be. And that's our fault. We will look at this very carefully. We will listen to your substantive criticisms. And we will go forward in the future making sure to make movies that you, the audience, can love. I'm just kidding. They didn't say any of that. They didn't do any of that. They blamed the failure of the movie on you, the audience, 
being scumbags, racist, sexist, homophobes, transphobes, what have you. And because of worthless, scumbag, losers like you, you terrible people, you horrible people, you pox on the community. Because of people like you, our great and glorious and perfect movie that did everything right is failing. That's the message that they sent out. It's astounding why it's completely unprecedented, except for Ghostbusters doing the same thing, Ghostbusters 2016 and other movies doing the same thing. Blaming the audience is, in effect, job protection for the SJWs who screw something up. In order to not get fired, they make it seem as if all you troglodytes who hate women, who hate black people, who hate people with different sexual lifestyles, it's your fault that the movie failed. It's not the fault of the people who wrote the movie or cast the movie or directed the movie or acted in the movie. It's all your fault. And by putting that message out there, they save their jobs. So, in order to explain to you, to give you my pocket review or part of the review of a movie, I want to take you to Netflix for just a second. On Netflix, there is a documentary series that currently has eight episodes up. And I wrote about this on my Castalia House blog post. It's called The Toys That Made Us. And they go through and document how different toy lines were born, when they came up, how they came up, what people worked on them, who helped develop them. And they're really very interesting documentaries. They cover He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe and Cobra, Star Wars. And in the last four episodes that went up in the last couple of weeks, they talk about Star Trek. Now, the Star Trek toys were a really interesting case because as soon as this one company, the very first company, that made Star Trek, as soon as they got the license, they immediately took a ton of other toys that had nothing to do with Star Trek, did not resemble anything that had ever been in the series. They slapped labels, stickers on them, over the stickers, that showed they were for something else and sold them as if they had anything to do with Star Trek. Um, and so you have this helmet that has big transparent bug eyes that kids were supposed to wear that had nothing to do with Star Trek. They just printed up a sticker, slapped a sticker on it, stuck it in a box with the name Star Trek on it, and sent it out into the world. You had guns that didn't look anything like Star Trek phasers. They shot little plastic discs 
and they claimed those were Star Trek toys. Over and over again, for a couple of decades, it was literally impossible to buy toys that looked like Star Trek. So, I want to bring this back to Solo, a Star Wars toy. Excuse me, a Star Wars story. The Solo movie is, in this case, a movie that has absolutely nothing to do with Star Wars. Nothing at all. It doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie. It doesn't flow like a Star Wars movie. It doesn't have characters that feel like they're from the Star Wars universe. It is, in effect, a completely different movie with the Star Wars sticker slapped on it and sent out into the world and sold to you as if it were a Star Wars movie when it is not. You have a Lando Calrissian who doesn't act like Lando Calrissian at all. Completely different character. You have a Han Solo who doesn't act like Han Solo. You have these eight random characters who are supposedly the start of the rebellion, but it makes no sense why the rebellion would start with these eight random characters, including a 16-year-old girl. Did you know that? That the great rebellion, the rebel alliance against the empire, really started actually started with a 16-year-old girl who was playing pirate in full face mask Mad Max gear, okay? Mad Max gear with a mask on started the Rebel Alliance. Makes no sense. None of this movie makes sense. It is not really a Star Wars movie. Now, let's pretend for just a minute that we took the Star Wars label off of it and we just watched it for what it is. A random generic space opera. Is it good? No. It's not terrible. Assuming it were a random generic space opera science fiction movie. It's not terrible, but Movies like Battle Beyond the Stars and the original Battlestar Galactica and several other science fiction movies you could think of are better. They're better science fiction movies. They're better space opera movies. And um, this movie compares poorly to them. It is frenetic confusing, poorly focused. It does not establish a satisfactory storyline for the characters. It isn't an exciting action-adventure space opera. And yet at the same time, the other things it's trying to be 
which is it's also trying to be a heist movie and it's also trying to be a film noir movie down to the you know <laughs> down to the femme fatale who's uh, a girl from the main character's past who shows up unexpectedly in the middle of a crime den who's very, very sexy and alluring and draws the hero in and he's drawn to her despite the fact that everybody, including him, knows she's poison. It fails to be a good film noir movie or even a good science fiction film noir movie. It fails to be a good heist movie it fails to be a good space opera. It fails to be a good action movie. There is not a single thing this movie doesn't set out to do that it doesn't fail. And assuming I were reviewing this as a Star as a non-Star Wars movie, I would say kind of interesting a little bit helter-skelter, some decent action scenes, but it's not a great movie. I recommend seeing it on Netflix or at Redbox for a buck. Don't pay full price. But as soon as you slap the Star Wars label on it, you have some expectation of quality. Now, don't get me wrong. After The Force Awakens, after The Last Jedi, after even Rogue One, your expectations have to be far, far lower than they would have been, say, before the prequels. Really, really high before the prequels, a lot lower after the prequels, and way, 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 way low after these recent Disney movies. Even then, even with the supremely lowered expectations, Solo does not live up to them. As a Star Wars movie, it is better than The Last Jedi, but that isn't saying much. Because The Last Jedi actively set out to spit in the faces of fandom, to kick you in the crotch. That was the director's deliberate goal, was to trash the series. And this movie is at least trying to be entertaining. It's mostly failing, but it's at least trying to be entertaining. It's not actually trying to lecture you. It's not actually trying to force politics down your throat. Yes, there is the re requisite amount of left-wing social justice garbage in there. That is more a reflection of studio demands and expectations, of Kathleen Kennedy's demands and expectations, than anything Ron Howard was trying to do. In order to get this movie made, you just have to put some of that in there. The stupidest moment in the movie is when a character who is annoying as hell, the most obnoxious, aggravating part of this entire movie dies. And the audience has to cheer because we're so sick of this useless character 
to have them die is a great and grand and glorious event. It's like having Jar Jar die two-thirds of the way into the Phantom Menace. People would be cheering in the aisles and high-fiving each other. And yet Lando Calrissian is literally crying. He is sobbing like someone had just killed his firstborn son. Like someone had destroyed his favorite velour suit. And we, the audience, are expected to be feeling like this character's death is a tragedy. No one likes this character. Having this character die is a good thing. We're not going to feel sad about it. And yet the movie tries to make this into an old yeller moment. I'm going to spoil old yeller, but this movie is like 40 some odd years old. So if you haven't watched it by now, it's your fault. The spoiler statute of limitations has expired on Old Yeller. Old Yeller is a dog that over the course of the movie, the family loves and the audience invests in. It is a good dog. It is a loyal dog. It is a beloved dog. And then at one point in the movie, the dog gets rabies and the owner of the dog has to take it out and kill it shoot it and the children who love this dog are devastated the family who loves this dog is devastated and it's a gut punch in the movie it is genuinely tragic and you feel for the family this movie tries to make you feel like the death of this annoying social justice spouting robot is as tragic as old Yeller getting shot. Nobody cares. It's a complete failure. And that one detail is a stand-in for all the rest of the failures of the film. So as a Star Wars movie, it's a disaster. It's a little bit better than The Last Jedi, but not much. It does have a couple of entertaining action scenes that are made worse by the characters and the actors and the script. And as a generic space opera movie, it would be muddled. It needed to pick one venue instead of trying to be four different things. It should have just tried to be one thing. I cannot recommend Solo. Nor, to switch to the second movie I want to talk about, nor can I recommend Ocean's 8. Now, Ocean's 8 was just released. It is, in effect, a remake of the George Clooney Ocean's Eleven. A soft reboot is what they call it. 
because it's set in the same universe. The main character is supposed to be Danny Ocean's sister. Danny Ocean is name dropped a couple of times. There's a picture of George Clooney as Danny Ocean at one point. And one of the characters from Ocean's 11 and, and 12 uh, and 13 shows up in one scene. So they're trying to connect it in a, you know, but it's about a woman who gets out of jail on parole for having failed in an art con and been caught. And she gets out and immediately hooks up with her blonde friend and sets up a con job, a heist, and has, as part of the heist, a plan to get even with somebody and assembles a group of crooks to carry this out. It's just like Ocean's Eleven. Only instead of taking place in Las Vegas, it takes place in New York, New York City. They're robbing something from the Met Gala. This is a huge problem because they're making this movie as much like Ocean's Eleven as they absolutely can. The music of Ocean's Eleven, the very distinctive Las Vegas music is all throughout the movie. Well, I'm sorry. That music is intimately tied to Las Vegas. It only exists in Las Vegas and slapping that kind of music all over New York doesn't work. They also, uh, Steven Stoderberg, who directed the George Clooney Ocean's Eleven, is an executive producer of this movie, but uh, does not direct it. It's directed by someone else. And they try in many cases to duplicate his shot composition and cinematography and so on and so forth, they are trying very hard to make it so that if you liked Ocean's Eleven, you will like this movie. And in some cases, it works kind of. But Ocean's Eleven is a movie that very much wraps up, wraps itself in the aura, in the feeling of Las Vegas casinos and lounge music and so on and so forth. And this movie demands a different kind of cinematography. It demands a feel of New York City, of upper-class New York City, of upper-class fashion industry New York City, and it doesn't deliver. It's kind of schizophrenic. I found myself wanting the movie to 
do well and to be good after the first few minutes of it. Sandra Bullock plays the lead character and she does a great job because she's a great actress, but she's given really mediocre material. And the movie is not abysmal. I want to give you a scale here, a sliding scale of movie quality. At the very, very bottom is a movie that's so bad, it's bad. Right above that is a movie that's so bad, it's good. Then there's bad, meh, good, great, amazing, and at the very top, the very apex of this scale is, I want to marry this movie and have its little babies. This movie is meh. It has, for the most part, skilled and veteran actors. And so the performances aren't so terrible that you can hate them. The cinematography, despite being out of place for New York City, is still well done. It's very skillfully made. The soundtrack, despite being out of place for the setting, is still well done. It's not jarring with, within itself. Um, the writing isn't so bad. It's noticeable. It's not good writing, but it's not so bad it's noticeable. And that's how you can grade every other part of the movie. It's not so bad it's noticeable. It's just not any good. It's supposed to be a heist movie. And unlike Solo, it focuses on the heist. And that's it. It's all about the heist. So it doesn't try to be seven different things. But the heist plan doesn't work. And I've got some big problems with it. Uh, internal consistency problems, logic problems. I'll talk about maybe before we are done. As a heist movie, it's supposed to be tense. It's supposed to be exciting, and there's supposed to be moments of genuine comedy. And if you think back to Ocean's Eleven, all of them were there. All of those elements were there. This movie does not have those elements. I laughed once, once in the entire movie. I wasn't so bored I was falling asleep, but I wasn't excited either. And most of my time in the movie was spent dissecting it, looking at the innards, rather than being entertained. Movies that are terrible, I get four or five pages of notes. Movies that are great, I stop taking notes because I'm so wrapped up in the movie. This movie, I've got a page and a quarter of notes. 1.25 pages of notes, which means it has a lot of problems but not so many that I can say it's terrible. There is no entertainment value to be derived from Ocean's 8. Even if you like watching bad movies to revel in the awfulness, this movie is not bad enough to provide you with any satisfaction on that scene, on that score. So... It's basically just a failure. 
a big budget failure. That's it. With enough money, you can buy people skilled at cinematography. You can buy people skilled at putting together a soundtrack. You can buy actors who can give you decent performances. You can dress up the sets and build props that are expensive looking and that fit. You can make these fabulous overblown dresses that people wear to the Met Gala. You can pay for celebrity cameos. Kim Kardashian shows up at one point. Bella Hadid shows up at one point. Uh, and many, many other, uh, or several other, recognizable people show up. You can buy all of that, but you can't make it good. You can't make it work as a movie. And despite the huge budget that's on display, that they got their value for. You can see where their money went to in this budget, the sumptuous scenery, the gorgeous um, dresses, all of that stuff. You can see where their money was spent, and it was well spent. They didn't waste their money on any of these scores. But at the same time, the core of the movie, the script, the story does not work. So we're down to the very last few minutes of the show. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into some spoilers here to explain to you one part of the movie, why it was so terrible, and you can kind of extrapolate that level of um the level of bad screenwriting through the rest of the movie. They're going to the Met Gala. They want to steal this. $150 million necklace from Cartier that has been in a vault for 50 years. It never comes out of the vault. So they con an actress, a fictional actress played by Anne Hathaway, who's supposed to be the belle of the ball for the Met Gala. She's supposed to be the tippiest, toppiest top of the A-lister, an actress more famous and more beloved than any other. They con her into having her gown designed by a fashion designer who's down on her luck, who's been charged by the, uh, charged by the IRS with tax evasion, and is going to go to jail. They wrap this fashion designer up in their plot. They con the actress into getting the fashion designer to design her dress. The fashion designer makes part of her costume, part of her ensemble, this necklace, this $150 million necklace. And they're going to go to the Cartier get this necklace on the actress, and while she's at the Met Gala, steal it and replace it with a fake. The problem is, at the end of all of this, they have to put forth a patsy who the insurance company and the police can nail for the crime. 
because otherwise they're all going to get caught. The Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City is just about every inch covered by cameras. And so they're all on film. They have to do all of this without being caught on camera. And so they have to find a patsy. And at the end of the movie, Sandra Bullock's character slips a piece of the necklace. They've snipped it apart to separate it into different pieces of jewelry so they can take each out openly and wear them as necklaces, uh, or excuse me, as earrings or as little bands or whatever. Brooches. And their plan cannot work. It's physically impossible. Because what she does is she slips a little piece of the necklace into the pocket of the man she's trying to frame, of the man she's trying to get revenge on. And he can't get caught. And indeed, doesn't get caught. He doesn't know. He has this piece of jewelry on him. Nor do any of the security for the necklace know. Nor do any of the guards working at the Met know. Nor do the cops know. Nor does the insurance adjuster know. Nobody knows that their patsy has a piece of the necklace. And so their plan will fail. 100%. It can't work. And in the stupidest plot twist of all, and I'm giving this away, it's a spoiler because it's so stupid, I have to rant about it. The actress, this Hollywood starlet, who they've made the center of their con, realizes that they stole the necklace and comes to their secret lair. And for no good reason, the actress joins in on the con. The man they're framing was her date to the Met. So they have the actress go out on another date with the man they're framing and take a picture of the piece of jewelry they left on him and send it to the insurance investigator. If the actress hadn't have seen through their lies, if they hadn't completely have failed at their jobs and then hadn't come to them and then hadn't decided to join the con for no reason whatsoever and then hadn't decided to go out and hang out again with the Patsy and then hadn't succeeded at taking a picture and texting it without getting caught. 
if none of this huge long chain of random events, of lucky breaks, had failed, if none of them had happened, their entire plan failed, and every single one of them is going to jail. It's stupid. It's so deeply stupid that even if the rest of the movie had gone well, this would have ruined it. And the rest of the movie wasn't going well anyway. When you're in an Ocean's Eleven situation, where you have a long, elaborate con job made up of multiple smaller con jobs, the only way for the audience to feel satisfied is they have to be overwhelmingly impressed by the skill the panache, and the cleverness of your protagonists. They have to like your protagonists and be impressed with their skills. And having the entire plan fail or would have failed if not for this long series of highly improbable events completely destroys audience buy-in with the characters and the plot. So the movie did not have a lot of genuinely entertaining moments. It did not have the humor of Ocean's Eleven, which was just full of humor. You had Bernie Mac squeezing the dealer's hand to get brakes on the vans. You have the two brothers, Casey Affleck and the other guy, arguing with each other. You have uh, Brad Pitt playing the straight man where George Clooney is trying to suck him into this plot. All of their conversations, where Brad Pitt is just sitting there silent and George Clooney does all of the talking, but there's still a conversation going, and it's funny. Where uh, Vernon, the old man with the big square glasses that they go to to get funding from, all of his involvement, the talking about the previous heists from Las Vegas that failed, all of that humor through the whole movie. There were no genuine moments of entertainment no genuine moments of humor. And like Solo, a Star Wars story, where they took a movie that wasn't Star Wars and slapped the Star Wars logo on it because that's the only way they could sell it. This movie, Ocean's 8, is not an Ocean's 11 movie. It's a fake. It's a knockoff. It has nothing to do, fundamentally speaking, with Ocean's Eleven. They just slapped that 
logo on it, slap the sticker over a mediocre generic heist movie and tried to suck you in to play on your nostalgia because Ocean's Eleven came out 17 years ago. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if that's sunk in yet. It's 17 years old. It came out in 2001. They're trying to play on your nostalgia for that original movie to make you like this one, which is exactly what Han Solo, A Star Wars Story, did, which is exactly what those knockoff crappy toys that had nothing to do with Star Trek did. They're trying to borrow entertainment value from a name, and it fails. And in fact, it makes this movie look all the worse. This movie would probably have looked better had the music been right for New York City, had the cinematography been right for New York City, and had they not slapped the ocean's name on it, it probably would have worked, probably would have seemed better. Because at least it would have seemed like they were trying to do something original instead of trying to rip off something that was done better in the first case, in the first place. Okay, folks, um, that's it for today. Uh, we got some discussion going on in the uh, chat about uh, Space Opera and Lynch's Dune and stuff like that. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can go ahead and check that out. This is Geek Gab. We're here uh, most Saturdays about this time. YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. Me and my fellow host, John Dornall. You can also catch us. You can subscribe to the podcast on... SoundCloud, on the Google Play Store, and on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab. We're right there. YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. We are out of here for tonight. We're gone. Show's over. We're not doing any more. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will. Be back.